The following program is a PDX Justice Media Productions From the Archives Lecture. The date is March 15, 1989. The title of the lecture is The United States, Israel, and the Palestinians. Our speaker is Noam Chomsky, Professor of Linguistics and Philosophy at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Noam Chomsky is world-renowned for his revolutionary work in the fields of linguistics and philosophy. He is perhaps best known, outside of university settings, for his writings on contemporary issues, international affairs, and U.S. foreign policy. This lecture has been selected for its lasting relevance to the search for a resolution to the conflict in Israel-Palestine. The lecture was delivered at the height of the First Palestinian Intifada, or Uprising, which is generally described as lasting from 1987 to 1993. In the many years since this lecture, much has changed in the region. The Oslo Peace Accords were signed, the Palestinian leader Yasser Arafat returned from exile, and the partial governing institutions of the Palestinian Authority were created. Israeli occupation forces were redeployed to allow partial autonomy for select regions of the occupied territories, and there has been significant expansion of Israeli settlements and associated infrastructure in the occupied territories, primarily in the West Bank. Tragically, the violence surged once again following a provocative visit to El Haram El Sharif, the Temple Mount, in Jerusalem, by the then-candidate for Prime Minister Ariel Sharon. This is the often-cited spark that began the Second Intifada, marked by the destruction of the Palestinian Authority security institutions, the redeployment of the Israeli occupation forces into the territories, the rise of targeted killings and assassinations of Palestinians by Israeli security forces, and a form of violent resistance that today colors many people's perceptions of the conflict, suicide bombing attacks against civilians inside of Israel. Palestinian leader Yasser Arafat passed away in late 2004. More recently, the Israeli Prime Minister Ariel Sharon long a key figure in shaping Israeli policies in the occupied territories, suffered a stroke and is unlikely to return to office. With the recent victory in democratic elections by the militant Islamic organization Hamas, events have once again taken a dramatic turn with uncertain consequences for all peoples of the region. We look back on this lecture, delivered over 15 years ago, for insights into where we find ourselves today. Of particular interest is Professor Chomsky's discussion of Zionism, his assessment of the so-called pro-Israel lobby, and his account of the strategic asset theory of U.S. support for Israel's continuing occupation. This entire lecture will be broadcast in three one-hour programs. The first program will include almost all of the lecture. The next program will conclude the lecture and cover most of the question-and-answer segment of Professor Chomsky's presentation. The final program will conclude the question-and-answer segment and then turn to commentary by members of the Jewish and Palestinian communities involved in the struggle for peace and justice in this troubled land. And now, Professor Noam Chomsky, 
the United States, Israel, and the Palestinians. A lecture from the archives, March 15, 1989. The lecture was delivered at the Wisconsin Union Theater on the Madison campus of the University of Wisconsin. kind enough to leave me some reading material. Thanks, whoever it was. <laughs> uh, well, I'd like to begin uh, these, which will be pretty informal remarks, by uh, quoting, by uh, reading a few things from a recent uh, article in the Hebrew press in Israel. This is by a journalist named Nahum Barnea, who's one of the leading doves and one of the leading Israeli journalists. It's about a meeting between defense minister uh, Yitzhak Rabin from the Labor Party and leaders of the Peace Now group, the sort of mainstream peace group. And the article's entitled, it's uh, February 24th, and it's entitled uh, Happy in Their Lot. And it describes how Rabin came to the meeting uh, relaxed and happy. Uh, and he explained that uh, he was particularly pleased about the uh, U.S. Uh, dialogue with the PLO, which he said was a very successful operation from Israel's point of view, uh, despite what they may be saying publicly. Uh, it was a low-level discussion, uh, which had no significance. Uh, and its purpose was as a delaying action, uh, from the point of view of the United States, uh, to allow Israel a year at least, he said, to put down the uprising by force uh, while these delaying operations go on. And he said the Palestinians in the occupied territories are now under harsh military and economic pressure, and he predicted that they will be broken and that they will accept Israel's terms. So the U.S. diplomatic maneuver, he concluded, is a delaying effort, uh, and there, to, mainly to give Israel time to crush the intifada, the uprising, uh, and uh, that's uh, uh, very much in Israel's interest, so he's very pleased about it all. Well, uh, there's every reason to suppose that this is an accurate description. I think there's been every reason to suppose that ever since the United States agreed to uh, the dialogue on uh, December uh, 14th in what was described as a stunning breakthrough and a tremendous triumph of American diplomacy and uh, one of the great momentous events of modern history and so on and so forth. Uh, the, uh, uh, as the Bush administration finally made public its terms, uh, the point becomes quite obvious. There was a front page article in the New York Times a couple days ago, March 12th, uh, in which uh, they, the Bush administration leaked the terms that it's proposing to both sides. To Israel, the proposals are that they reduce some of the repressive measures that they've instituted since the uprising began. So in other words, return to a situation just somewhat more oppressive than before the uprising. 
and uh, for the Palestinians, uh, they should, uh, there should be, I'll just read the actual wording, a halt to violent demonstrations in the territories, that means an end to the uprising, uh, blocking anti-Israeli anti raids from southern Lebanon, stopping distribution of inflammatory leaflets. So in other words, they should stop everything and go back to the situation prior to the uprising, and Israel will go back to a somewhat more repressive situation than before, uh, and then we can go on. Uh, now, some of these terms are, are particularly interesting. I mean, violent demonstrations, you know, that can mean, for example, uh, declaring a liberated village, uh, which says it's going to run its own affairs. And then when Israeli soldiers come in to uh, uh, break up this violence, uh, maybe throwing stones at them and so on, that's what's called violent demonstrations. Uh, the blocking of the anti-Israeli raids in southern Lebanon is an interesting case. Uh, the, uh, 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 there has been a you recall a couple, of, about a week or two ago, there was, a, in fact, for the last several weeks, there's been a good deal of uh, concern over whether uh, the PLO is living up to its uh, renunciation of terrorism because there have been attacks against Israeli soldiers in southern Lebanon. Notice it's taken for granted that Israeli soldiers have a right to be in southern Lebanon, where they, in fact, carry out constant terrorist activities, which are typically not reported. Uh, there are two kinds. There are the kinds in the areas of southern Lebanon that Israel has virtually annexed as its security zone, where just in the last uh, month or so, about 100 people have been expelled, uh, women, children, and old men in this case, uh, because the villages, uh, uh, their villages have refused to cooperate with the South Lebanon Army. That's a terrorist mercenary army that Israel's established uh, to control southern Lebanon. Uh, and Israeli forces are there to ensure that it does control them. Uh, the Israeli forces themselves have been storming the villages to drive people out. That's not considered terrorism. Uh, and also not considered terrorism are the regular Israeli bombings north of their security zone, that is, throughout the rest of Lebanon. Uh, just two weeks ago, for example, a bombing raid that uh, happened to hit a school and wounded uh, 26 children, five of them critically. Nobody knows what further results are because nobody reported it. Uh, last year, 1988, according to the Lebanese police, uh, there were about 128 people killed and several hundred wounded, and many of them civilians in these raids. But that's not a problem of terrorism. Terrorism is if Lebanese uh, or Palestinians attack Israeli soldiers in Lebanon. That's the kind of terrorism that they're called upon to stop. Well, uh, if we look further, uh, we find still more reason to believe that uh, the defense minister Rabin's uh, interpretation is accurate. The protocols of the first meeting between the U.S. ambassador uh, in Tunis, Robert Pelletro, and the PLO, those protocols were leaked. Uh, they were published in the Egyptian press in a newspaper close to President Mubarak, and they were then translated into English and published in the Jerusalem Post, uh, January 6th, so you can read them if you like. Uh, or if you want a, another source, you can read it, the relevant excerpts from them in an article of mine in Z Magazine this month, uh, which is the first publication of them in the United States, as far as I know. The, uh, the uh, protocols state, uh, the, the Jerusalem Post article begins by expressing its pleasure that the United States has accepted Israel's terms completely uh, in the dialogue with the Palestinians, uh, and it then goes on to give the verbatim transcripts. The U.S. delegate opens the discussion by saying that the United States has two demands that it insists upon. 
The first demand is that the Palestinians call off the uprising, which the United States regards as terrorism directed against the state of Israel. Okay, so if the Palestinians declare liberated villages in the West Bank under military occupation, the United States regards that as terrorism directed against the state of Israel and calls upon the PLO to stop it. If they don't stop it, they've backed off from their uh, alleged uh, commitment to withhold terror from stop terrorism. Uh, now, of course, if the Palestinians, notice incidentally that they call on the PLO to call off the uprising, the assumption being that the PLO could call off the uprising uh, or that the PLO initiated the uprising. Now, it's conceivable that U.S. and Israeli intelligence actually believe this. Uh, it's a total, it's total nonsense, as anyone who's actually bothered to look at the facts is aware. The PLO is no more capable of calling off the uprising than you are. Uh, and in fact, uh, was very surprised by it. It's a spontaneous, popular revolution, in fact. But typically, over the years, wherever we have records, uh, intelligence, uh, CIA, the Mossad, the FBI, I mean, any intelligence agency that I know of, has been completely incapable of understanding the dynamics of popular movements. They make the most colossal errors in their effort to uh, deal with this. I could give you some examples if you like. Uh, and they, they must assume that they're directed from outside by some, you know, hostile force, because that's the only doctrinally uh, tenable uh, approach to the fact. You can't, it's, uh, there's a good deal of ideological fanaticism in the interpretations given by intelligence agencies, which is one reason why they're always falling flat on their face, uh, as they do time and time again, including the, uh, you know, the ones that are constantly praised for their great achievements, mostly, mostly fabricated. Uh, so it is conceivable that uh, U.S. and Israeli intelligence actually believe that the PLO could call off the uprising and therefore the American ambassador believed it. Or it could be that this is just a put on. Uh, in any event, if the Palestinians were to call off the uprising, the situation would return to the prior status quo when the United States was quite prepared to continue supporting uh, the uh, quite harsh and oppressive and brutal military regime uh, and to pay for it and to pay for Israeli settlements and to block a political settlement and so on. That is, we would simply return to the status quo ante. That's the first American demand. Go back to the situation in which nothing was happening and there was no, uh, no pressure for any political settlement. The second U.S. demand was equally interesting. Uh, the PLO was told that the second minimal condition for continuing these discussions seriously is that they abandon any uh, uh, commitment to an international conference and enter into direct negotiations with Israel, which Israel incidentally refuses. Uh, now, what's the importance of that? Well, the importance of that is that uh, the international community, virtu with virtual unanimity, is committed, in fact, rather deeply committed to a political settlement of what they perceive correctly to be a highly inflammatory and dangerous conflict. The United States, in contrast, is committed to opposing and blocking a political settlement. Uh, therefore, and that's been going on for years, I'll give the background. Now, if there is an international conference, no matter who's in it, uh, if it's the Russians or the Europeans or the non-aligned countries or just about anybody you can pick, uh, they're going to be pressing for a political settlement or for a diplomatic settlement. And since the United States is opposed to that, we don't want such pressures. We want direct negotiations in which Israel, with U.S. backing, can simply take the position that the United States supports 
namely continue the status quo without a political settlement and without any external pressures, there will be no uh, or external framework for continuing the discussion, uh, there will be no um, further danger that things might move in a direction that the United States can't control. So that's the meaning, the plain meaning of the call for uh, uh, rejecting an international conference. Uh, there's another factor beyond, beyond, behind that, and that is that the United States simply does not tolerate uh, other nations becoming involved in what the U.S. government regards as its turf, and the Middle East is its turf and has been for a long time, so others should keep their fingers out of it, hence no international conference. It's for similar reasons that the United States uh, strongly opposed and succeeded in undermining the Contadora negotiations in Latin America, where the Latin American democracies tried to involve themselves in a political settlement in Central America and so on. Well, those are the two U.S. demands. One, call off the uprising so we go back to the prior status quo when nothing was happening, and the United States, meaning you and me, the taxpayers, continued to support the repression, the expansion, the con continued integration of the territories into Israel and so on. That's demand number one. And demand number two is no international conference, that is, no international pressures for a diplomatic settlement, that is, continue uh, to block progress. Well, those are, uh, those are the U.S. positions, uh, and that uh, explains why uh, Yitzhak Rabin, the, defense, the labor defense minister, is so pleased and so satisfied with his lot and so tranquil about the fact that uh, uh, the United States is carrying on this dialogue, this delaying action to give Israel another year to crush the uprising by force, which he thinks will succeed. Well, if you look at the background uh, for all of this, at the background developments, I think these current uh, uh, activities and processes fall into place and become quite intelligible. Uh, you recall that the great diplomatic breakthrough, the great diplomatic success that the press hailed all over the front pages took place on December 14, 1988. And that was the time when Yasser Arafat was supposed to have said the magic words that the United States was demanding that he say all along, but he had always refused. And uh, he had repeated the uh, George Shultz appeared on television and his lugubrious voice explained that uh, Arafat had finally dropped his ambiguity and had repeated the words that the United States had written out for him. And therefore, we were willing to enter into negotiations, tremendous diplomatic breakthrough. Uh, the fact of the matter, as anyone who took five minutes uh, could have discovered, are that Arafat's statements at a, the press conference in question were as remote from the U.S. demands as they had always been. In fact, Arafat's statements were precisely distinct from the U.S. demands in crucial respects and uh, were identical to the positions that he'd been taking for the past 13 years. Now, that would have taken about five minutes to figure out, but you won't find that mentioned anywhere. The press universally, to my knowledge, uh, repeated that Arafat had capitulated, accepted the U.S. demands, and now he could have a dialogue with him. I'll come back to what the significance of that fact is, but let me put it in a little bit of historical context, and then I'll clarify what I mean by what I just said. Uh, as I say, it'll take you five minutes of research to figure it out. You just have to look at the texts that were published in the New York Times, and you will see immediately that it's true. Uh, and, and the differences between the U.S. position, which Arafat did not take, and the PLO position, which he did take, are very substantive and very critical. If the PLO had accepted the U.S. demands, they would have totally capitulated. 
uh, to uh, U.S.-Israeli terms. Uh, well, uh, and abandoned any right to self-determination, in fact. We'll come back to that. But now let's take a little bit of a look at the history, because this has been going on for a long time. It's been going on for quite a long time. Uh, the, uh, uh, there has been a general international consensus, a very broad international consensus, uh, on a political, on the general terms of a political settlement in the Middle East of the Arab-Israeli conflict. Now, the, you know, there's a little bit of vacillation about the details, but the general terms are quite clear, and they are expressed in document after document. Uh, these uh, proposal of this sort came to the United Nations Security Council in January 1976, 13 years ago. Uh, it was a resolution which called for a political settlement of the Arab-Israeli conflict uh, on the internationally recognized borders, that's the pre-June 1967 borders, uh, with a Palestinian state established in the Gaza Strip and the West Bank, uh, and with uh, international guarantees for the uh, integrity, sovereignty, and security of every state in the region, and uh, 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 guarantees for the right of every state to live in peace and security within secure and recognized borders. Uh, those of you who are familiar with the diplomacy will note that the terms in which this proposal were uh, expressed uh, were precisely the wording of UN 242. United Nations Resolution 242, which is widely understood and accepted, in particular by the United States, to be the foundation for a political settlement. The terms were different from UN 242 in one crucial respect. UN 242 refers only to states. It offers nothing to the Palestinians, and this extended the terms of UN 242 to the Palestinians. That was January 1976. Uh, that resolution was supported by most of the world, by most of Europe, by non-aligned countries, the Soviet Union. Uh, it was not only supported by the Arab states, but introduced by the major Arab states. It was introduced by Syria, Jordan, and Egypt, the three so-called confrontation states, the ones involved in the direct conflict. It was supported publicly by the PLO, uh, and in fact, according to Israel's delegate, uh, uh, Chaim Herzog, who's now president, uh, it was actually prepared by the PLO. Uh, so here you have a very broad, broad support for a political settlement, and that has expressed, it was vetoed by the United States. Uh, the res resolution was vetoed by the United States, and that terminated it. Uh, the, uh, uh, notice that in January 1976, uh, the PLO and Arafat explicitly endorsed the wording of UN 242, the actual wording, while extending it to a Palestinian state. That's precisely the position that Arafat took on December 14th, uh, 1988, uh, when he stated the magic words. Nothing had changed in between. Same is true of the other points. Uh, the, the United States vetoed it at that time, and it's trying to block it now. And that's the meaning of the current delaying action. Uh, now, between 1976 and today, uh, there have been repeated uh, efforts to introduce to, to introduce a settlement of about approximately that sort. Uh, the Arab states and the PLO have repeatedly called for uh, uh, negotiations with Israel leading to mutual recognition of Israel and the Palestinians, uh, recognition of the right to national self-determination of both groups, uh, the right of both to live in peace and security, and so on. It's always been blocked by Israel and the United States. Uh, the, uh, I Israel's reaction to the UN session in 1976, incidentally, was 
or to refuse to attend uh, and to state Yitzhak Rabin was then the prime minister of what was considered a dovish labor cabinet, uh, they stated that they would not deal with the PLO even if the PLO were to renounce terrorism and to recognize the state of Israel, uh, and they would not deal with any Palestinians on any political issue. That was the dovish Labor Party position at the time. Uh, Israel's reaction to the calling of the UN session was the typical one. They bombed Lebanon, uh, killing about 50 people, according to Lebanese sources. That was reported in the United States, but since it's considered quite normal, there was no reaction to it. Uh, recall that Israel's a client state of the United States. Therefore, it inherits certain rights from us, including the right to kill anybody it feels like. That's our right, so therefore it, it's inherited by any client. And when they do it, you don't have to, you can report it maybe, but you don't have to bother uh, uh, commenting on it. Well, that was January 1976. I won't run through all the details since, but if you want, I'll give you more. They're you know, easily documented and are documented in print. Uh, that's roughly the story from then to now. Now, let's look back a little further. That is not the first proposal to uh, uh, solve the, uh, uh, to reach a political settlement. The first proposal uh, since the 1967 war was in February 1971. In February 1971, uh, President Sadat of Egypt, who had just become president, uh, called for a political settlement on the pre-June 1967 borders, the internationally recognized borders, uh, um, with, again, the wording of UN 242 guarantees for the rights of all states to live in peace and security, et cetera, et cetera, in fact, all the standard terms. Uh, and nothing for the Palestinians. In other words, that was a completely rejectionist proposal. They offered nothing to the Palestinians, zero. Israel re recognized it as a genuine peace offer and rejected it uh, on the grounds that if they held out, they could get better territorial uh, concessions. Uh, now, the United States uh, backed Israel in that uh, rejection, even though Sadat's proposal was framed in virtually the same terms. It was virtually identical with official U United States government policy. Uh, what was happening in the United States at the time was that there was an internal conflict, an internal conflict between two uh, uh, conceptions as to how to deal with the problem. One was the concept, I mean, symbolically, they were represented by S Secretary of State William Rogers and National Security Advisor Henry Kissinger, respectively, but there were big power groups behind them. Uh, the Rogers position, which was expressed in the Rogers Plan, official U.S. policy from December 1969, was identical, essentially, with minor trivial changes from Sadat's, to Sadat's proposal. Kissinger, in contrast, supported what he wanted, what he called stalemate. The United States should just keep things the way they are, keep Israeli power in control. And in the internal conflict in Washington, Kissinger's position won out. In fact, shortly after, he managed to push Rogers out as head of the State Department, and he took over himself. And since that time, with very little change, a little wavering now and then, but basically uh, Kissinger's position, stalemate, in other words, support Israeli power and block a political settlement, uh, that position has dominated U.S. policy uh, and uh, remains unchanged today, uh, as these contemporary developments demonstrate. Now, what was the context of all of this? Well, the context of all of this was, uh, uh, th th there's a background context, and let me just, uh, I should say before going on, that everything I've just described is easily documented, but it's missing from history. So when, say, the New York Times or scholarly monographs 
uh, write about the peace process in the Middle East or the diplomatic history. They don't include these events, and they, uh, nor do they include many other examples in which the PLO and uh, the Arab states have uh, pressed for such, for such political settlements. The reason they don't include them is that the United States did not support them, and therefore they do not form part of the peace process. Uh, the term peace process has a technical meaning in U.S. discourse. It refers, doesn't refer to the pro some process leading to peace. That's naive. That's only what the dictionary says. The peace process refers to whatever the United States happens to be doing at the moment. That's the peace process. And since the United States was not supporting these things, they're not part of the peace process. So when the Times, say New York Times, does a rundown of the peace process, naturally they're not there. And the same is true of virtually all the scholarly literature, I should say. Uh, uh, come back to more about this tonight if you're around. But anyhow, that's what the peace process is. Uh, therefore, this stuff is not in it. Uh, you can find it if you sort of dig through past issues of the New York Times, but it's not, uh, it's, it's not part of the history that people remember. It's just unacceptable fact, which therefore goes down the memory hole. Uh, but the, the real fact, the real unacceptable fact, is that since, Kissing, since Kissinger's victory, essentially, uh, over, the over the Department of State in 1971, the United States has been uh, insisting upon stalemate. That is support for Israeli domination of the region, uh, and that means blocking a political settlement, and there's every reason to believe that that's still continuing. Uh, now, let's look a little more closely at the, de uh, first at the background, further background, and then at the details. Why this position? It's not just an irrational position. It has a logic behind it. Um, you could argue that the logic is wrong, but you can't argue that there's no logic there. There is a logic there. Uh, the, uh, uh, the, the, the logic lies in the general U.S. geopolitical concern for the region. Uh, the United States has no particular concern for Israel. If Israel stopped being useful for U.S. purposes, it would go down the drain immediately. No moral concerns and no concerns for the greatest democracy in the Middle East and so on. All of that's there to justify policies taken on other grounds. People who think otherwise are going to be due for a rude surprise when U.S. policy finally does change, as it's likely to do. Uh, the uh, concern of the United States in the region is basically oil. Uh, it was recognized since the 1940s that the Arabian Peninsula is the major source of energy, cheap uh, easily accessible energy for the next several generations, and that whoever controls that oil uh, will basically dominate the world, meaning dominate, and if the United States controls it, it will have extensive power over its major enemies in the world, which are uh, Western Europe and Japan. Uh, the Soviet Union is a rhetorical enemy, but Western Europe and Japan are real enemies because they are, they, it was recognized already then, are potential rivals uh, by now, they're quite real rivals, not potential ones anymore. Uh, and control over oil, uh, control over their energy resources, gives the United States a veto power, as George Kennan put it years ago, uh, in case they get out of line. I happen to be referring specifically to Japan, but the same is true of Europe. So the United States, which did not need the oil for itself at that time, and in fact still doesn't really, uh, the United States and its the Western Hemisphere, totally controlled by the United States, was the major oil producer more than half the oil in the world until 1968. Uh, but the United States needed control over the oil as part of the mechanism for uh, controlling the contours of the general global order that it intended to dominate. And that was taken very seriously. The oil of the Middle East was described by the State Department back in 
1944 as uh, uh, a uh, stupendous material resource and the greatest strategic prize in world history. And that characterization continues for a year, many years, and in fact still does. When the declassified documents emerge about today, 30 years from now, I don't doubt that you'll find similar comments. Uh, the, uh, now, how do you control the oil? Well, what threat is there to it? The same threat that there is to U.S. access to resources everywhere in the world. If you study U.S. foreign policy seriously, that is, you look at the actual documentary record of top-level planning, uh, you discover a constant strain. The United States must be opposed to what are called nationalistic regimes. That means regimes that are responsive to pressures from the masses of their own population for improvement in low living standards and diversification of production and control of their own resources. Those are essentially quotes from document after document after document. Now, these, these regimes are what are sometimes called ultra-nationalist, or another term for them is radical nationalist. Now, radical here has nothing to do with politics. They can be ultra-right regimes run by some you know, military dictatorship. They're still radical nationalists if they're responsive to the need to domestic concerns instead of being responsive to the overriding uh, rights of U.S. investors. That's what counts. Uh, and if they don't meet that condition, they're radical regimes or they're ultra-nationalist or they're a threat and they have to be overcome either by military force or some other means. So you have to stop radical nationalism. Nationalist regimes which try to carry out development for domestic needs instead of for the transcendent needs of U.S. Uh, investors. Uh, and in the Middle East, they were also concerned about radical nationalism, radical Arab nationalism. Now, what do you do about it? Well, uh, running through the record, uh, you find that at first the United States was not entirely clear about what to do about it. There was a debate. Uh, when uh, General Nasser took over in Egypt in 1952, 53, around then, it was thought there was a split among U.S. Policymakers. Some thought that he could be our boy in the Middle East, uh, that is, that he could be the U.S. agent in the Middle East. And there was support for Nasser in the early period. But within a couple of years, it became clear that he was one of those radical nationalists, that he was an independent nationalist force. He sort of headed up the non aligned movement. And in general, he was making waves. He was uh, 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 stimulating independent nationalist forces uh, in the Arab world. And therefore, he had to be stopped. Uh, that was obvious by the mid-50s. In 1958, the National Security Council, so that's you know, the highest level of planning, uh, produced a memorandum uh, which stated that uh, uh, in the context of U.S. opposition to radical Arab nationalism, a rational policy would be support for Israel as the only reliable pro-U.S. force in the region. Now, that's the first recognition that I have been able to discover of what is now called the strategic asset thesis, the idea that Israel is a strategic asset which can serve U.S. needs. And the primary needs are to control and bar radical Arab nationalism, independent nationalist forces, which might ultimately threaten U.S. domination of the oil-producing regions. And this goes on. In the 1960s, these concerns intensified uh, as there, there was a conflict, in fact, an actual war between Saudi Arabia and Egypt. Saudi Arabia is what we really worry about. That's where most of the oil is. Uh, and as long as that oil is under the control of Saudi Arabian elites, nobody cares. Because Saudi Arabian elites are regarded as 
sort of honorary Americans, like the South Africans. South Africans regard the Japanese as honorary whites. We regard the South Saudi Arabian elites as our honorary Americans. They went to Harvard Business School. You know, they do what we tell them. Uh, and they'll run things in our interest. It's the radical nationalists we're worried about, the ones who aren't honorary Americans. Uh, and uh, th there was a conflict between Saudi Arabia and Egypt reaching the level of actual war in the early 60s. And that was considered very dangerous uh, because support for radical Arab nationalism in Saudi Arabia and the Gulf Principates and so on, that could be dangerous to the major sources of oil, uh, meaning they might fall under domestic control. Uh, uh, and uh, uh, in 1967, uh, Israel, in fact, was regarded at the time by U.S. intelligence as a barrier to radical nationalist pressures against the Arabian, against the Arabian Peninsula, against Saudi Arabia. Well, all of that came to a head in 1967. In 1967, Israel, with extensive U.S. backing, public U.S. backing, maybe actual more than just backing, but at least public U.S. backing, uh, won a major military victory. It r smashed the major Arab force, Egypt, also Syria, conquered the Sinai, uh, the Gol Syrian Golan Heights, the West Bank, expelled a couple hundred thousand people, uh, and uh, implanted itself in this region as a major, as a kind of a regional superpower. Now that was considered a big victory in the United States. There was a lot of applause. Uh, the reason was that, I mean, whatever the population may have felt, the reason among planners was that this uh, broke the back of radical Arab nationalism. It terminated the radical nationalist threat to Saudi Arabia, so it was assumed. Uh, and, there, and Israel won a lot of points on that. It's at that point that the close U.S.-Israeli alliance begins. Well, we're now getting up to 1970 and 71. Uh, by 1971, when Sadat made his proposal, other things were happening in the world as well. Uh, the United States at that time was beginning to suffer the serious costs of the Vietnam War. The Vietnam War changed power relations. It was extremely costly to the United States, and it was very beneficial to the rivals of the United States. Uh, Canada, Europe, and Japan uh, were enriching themselves on the destruction of Indochina as offshore producers for, of war materials and so on. And that, that really shifted the balance considerably between the United States and its main rivals, and something had to be done about it. In fact, lots of things were done. Uh, but one thing that was done was to, sh to change the conception of how you run the world. Uh, what was introduced at that time was what was called the Nixon Doctrine, about 1970-71. Now, the, the, the Nixon Doctrine was based on a recognition of the reality that the United States could not police the entire world itself, just didn't have the capacity to do that anymore. And therefore, we had to have what the Secretary of Defense called uh, local cops on the beat local gendarmes who would run particular areas for us with police headquarters, of course, in Washington. Uh, the way Henry Kissinger put it, in a little more academic terms, uh, he said, other powers will have regional responsibilities, which they will carry out within the overall framework of order managed by the United States. So that's a kind of a derogation of authority. You've got these regional authorities there, the local cops, and they sort of run their own affairs. Uh, they run the local region, and we give them the general framework. That's the Nixon Doctrine. Well, with regard to the Middle East, and that was applied for the entire world, uh, the United States is a global power. With regard to the Middle East, uh, the local cops on the beat were supposed to be Israel and, uh, and Iran. Iran was then under the Shah. Uh, Israel and Iran had a very close alliance. How close it is, we only learned after the fall of the Shah. 
when a lot of documentation came out in Israel, very little of it published here, uh, which showed what a deep alliance that was. In fact, it was quite remarkable. Of course, the United States knew all about it. Uh, and uh, uh, so it was a secret but real alliance. Uh, and uh, uh, the idea was that Iran and Israel, both heavily armed by the United States, would serve as local cops on the beat to prevent radical Arab nationalism from getting out of hand. Now, that point of view is expressed quite openly by the leading US government specialists on the area, Senator Henry Jackson in particular, who was the leading Senate uh, expert on oil in the Middle East, uh, pointed out that Iran, I Israel, and Saudi Arabia, Saudi Arabia is basically where the oil is, Iran, Israel, and Saudi Arabia have served to inhibit and contain those irresponsible and radical elements in certain Arab states who, were they free to do so, would pose a grave threat indeed to our principal sources of petroleum. The Saudis understand that Israel and Iran play a vital stabilizing role. The reason he added that last sentence is that theoretically, Saudi Arabia was at war with Israel and was at war with Iran. There was a war with Iran over the Iranian occupation of Arab islands in the Gulf, and theoretically they were at war with Israel. But Henry Jackson was pointing out to the sophisticated that that war was just for show. Basically, Saudi Arabia understood that there was an alliance. There was a tripartite alliance between Saudi Arabia, Israel, and Iran, uh, where uh, Israel and Iran play a vital stabilizing role. That is, they repress radical Arab nationalism in the interests of the Saudi Arabian elite. And when Jackson said that the Saudi Arabians understand this, meaning the Saudi Arabian elite understands this, I think there's every reason to believe that he was correct. Uh, an Iranian diplomat at the same time pointed out that without Israeli power in the Middle East, the Shah of Iran feels that the Arabs would be difficult to contain uh, and the Russians would very much gain an upper hand in the whole area. So from the Iranian point of view also, Israel, with whom they had a direct tacit alliance, not so tacit, in fact, an active alliance, which later became public, uh, uh, Israel played a stabilizing role, as Jackson put it, to contain radical Arabs. Well, that was the general picture. And it's in that context that uh, Kissinger pressed for stalemate, that is, for maintaining Israeli power, for maintaining Israel as a dominant military force, as a militarized state, a highly militarized, technologically advanced state that could serve as a US cop on the beat. Uh, now, that's only part of the story, because by that time, Israel had accepted these arrangements, much to its detriment, in my view, but they had accepted them. And uh, costs go along with that, or at least tasks go along with it. Israel was repeated, was increasingly being called upon to play the role of a US mercenary state for much of the world. Uh, in the 1960s, as these relationships began to crystallize, uh, Israel helped the United States penetrate black Africa with a huge CIA uh, subvention, which became public later. Uh, that meant that there were states in Africa where the United States really couldn't directly intervene very easily, couldn't get the American public to accept it and so on, but Israel could do it for us. Uh, and that led to a lot of effects. Uh, uh, Mobutu, the general of Zaire, was basically, he was installed really by US subversion, but then he was maintained by Israeli power. They trained his guard, they armed him and so on. Uh, Idi Amin, who the United States and Britain originally backed, in Uganda was placed in power partially with Israeli support and maintained that way. 
Uh, and the same was true across the region. Uh, you recall that the United States was then supporting secretly the uh, racist white states, Rhodesia and South Africa. Couldn't do it publicly. Now there was a UN, there was a United Nations embargo against sending oil to uh, Rhodesia, but the United States was able to get around it by having Israel send the oil to Rhodesia, as the Department of Commerce later conceded. And in general, the establishment of pro-U.S. Uh, often very brutal military states in Africa proceeded with Israeli help. They were the mercenaries who carried it out. By the 1970s, these roles extended to Asia and particularly to Latin America. As the, throughout Latin America in the late 60s and the early 70s, there was a kind of a plague of national security regimes, uh, Nazi-style state military dictatorships installed with U.S. aid and support first in Brazil and Uruguay and then Chile when the end the government was overthrown in Argentina and so on. It was difficult for the United States to support them directly uh, because of the congressional human rights legislation and other things, uh, but Israel could do it for us. So Israel established the relations with the neo-Nazi generals in Argentina and with the Pinochet government uh, in Chile and sent them the arms and gave them the training and sent people to lecture at the war college and so on and so forth. They established the relations. Uh, and the United States, that's serving the United States. Uh, in the late 70s, these relationships extended. In the late 70s, and uh, the, in, they extended to Central America, where massive repression was beginning. Uh, in Guatemala, uh, there was real mass murder beginning in the late 70s. Uh, again, the Carter administration couldn't openly support it because of congressional human rights legislation, but Israel was able to do it. They were able to provide the arms and the computer centers and the trainers and so on, along with other U.S. mercenary states like Taiwan, uh, funding from Saudi Arabia and so on. Remember, the United States is a powerful state. It's a global power. Uh, other countries hire terrorists. The United States hires mercenary states as terrorists. That's a new dimension in international terrorism. Nobody else even comes close. Uh, and uh, this, this network bits and pieces of which were exposed in the Iran-Contra hearings, if you bothered to read closely, but that's what it's really about. Uh, that was already developing in the 60s and especially in the 1970s, and Israel was only one of them. Taiwan's another, Saudi Arabia was the banker, uh, and you know Japan su supplied uh, mercenaries. In fact, uh, all of them are involved. You know, It's a big, complicated international terrorist network. Uh, and uh, uh, Israel was a major component uh, as a militarily competent, you know, technologically advanced, and very dependable state. Why was it dependable? Well, because it was utterly dependent on the United States for survival. In the conditions of military confrontation, as long as a military conflict continues there, Israel is, in fact, very dependent entirely on the United States for its survival. There's a the level of armaments in the region is fantastic. Uh, anything gets out of control, they could be wiped out. To keep their military edge, they require massive support from the United States, and being dependent, they're therefore assumed to be dependable, and therefore they perform these services. Well, all of that is what's called the strategic asset theory. There are more connections than that. Uh, there are intelligence connections, which are considered valuable to American intelligence. They, they uh, cooperate in weapons development. They are able to try out weapons in the field, which is very valuable, particularly against defenseless targets, which is the best way to do it. There's no way directly for the Pentagon to try it out, but Israel can try out the new fancy weapon systems, which is considered, again, a big gift and so on. And they sometimes capture you know, advanced Russian armaments and 
intelligence likes that and so on. So lots of services and connections and all of that put together is the strategic asset theory. Now one could argue that this is a crazy policy. Okay, that's another question. But it's not one that lacks logic. That's what's important. And it has been the one that's dominated. Um, as to why it's dominated, you probably have to look at the domestic American political scene and all sorts of other things. But the fact that it's dominated is, is fact, and that's for our purposes here. It's enough to point that out. Uh, and for this reason, the United States has been uh, blocking any political settlement, because a political settlement would terminate these arrangements. Uh, in a political settlement, Israel would simply be absorbed into the region uh, as its technologically and industrially most advanced component but instead of being a kind of a Prussia or a Sparta on call for uh, services, it would be a kind of a Switzerland or a Luxembourg, and that's essentially no use for the purposes of uh, uh, serving as a regional gendarme or a global mercenary. Uh, in 1979, the uh, Shah of Iran was overthrown in a popular revolution, and that meant that one of the two components of this tripartite alliance was gone. Uh, the uh, uh, United States at once began to move with Saudi Arabian and Israeli support to try to overthrow the new regime. That was the point, I, there's no doubt in my mind that that was the point of the arms flow to Iran beginning right away in 1979 and 1980 through Israel with Saudi Arabian support. Again, uh, this was quite well known in the early 80s, mostly, in fact, entirely suppressed in the Iran-Contra hearings, but that began right away. Uh, and the Israelis who were involved, the top-level Israelis, including the, uh, uh, the Israeli am ambassador, the current uh, Israeli foreign minister, Moshe Ahrens, pointed out way back in 1982 that the purpose of the arms flow to Iran was to overthrow the civilian regime. Remember, it's, very, it's a very typical technique. When you're trying to overthrow some civilian government, it's natural and almost a reflex to send them arms. That's what you do all the time. I mean, and it makes perfect sense. How do you overthrow a civilian regime? Well, you make contacts with the domestic military, and they'll overthrow the regime for you. But to make contacts with the military, you have to have contacts, training, you know, arms sales, uh, that sort of thing. So it's typical, over and over again, to overthrow, if you want to overthrow a civilian regime, you arm them. Uh, the United States, as everybody knows, was trying to overthrow the Allende regime in Chile, and throughout that whole period, it was sending, an ar sending Chile arms, and it worked. And we were rewarded by the Pinochet coup. Same thing was done in Indonesia and Brazil. I mean, it's standard. And it's pretty clear that immediately after the, overflow of the overthrow of the Shah, this operation began again uh, in Iran. And, you know, the end pieces of it were misleadingly described in the Iran-Contra hearings. But it began really in the early 80s. It was quite obvious already by then. There was plenty of evidence for it. Uh, and uh, the fact that Israel and Iran and Saudi Arabia were involved in all of this, as was exposed in the Iran-Contra hearings, is not in the least surprising. In fact, that should have been precisely anticipated because it's simply an attempt to reconstruct the tripartite alliance that was the basis for U.S. power in the region. Well, that Iranian part didn't succeed, uh, but uh, although the, the whole thing is still going on, incidentally, that's part of the maneuverings today, uh, but uh, as the Shah, after the Shah fell, Israel's role as a strategic asset became more important because it was the last gendarme. And in fact, U.S. aid to Israel shot up at that time, 79, 1980, around then, from 79 to 1982, U.S. aid to Israel, even official aid, the 
you look at the whole story, it's more. But the official aid reached about 50 percent of total U.S. aid in the world. That's a lot for a small country. Uh, and it reflects the significance of uh, maintaining U.S. dominance over that strategically critical region. Well, that's the logic of the U.S. opposition to a political settlement over many years. Uh, and uh, uh, I think it's the logic of the current rejection of, uh, of a political settlement, which the U.S. is uh, still engaged in. This concludes part one of the lecture program, The United States, Israel, and the Palestinians. In a moment, we'll turn to a brief preview of part two of this series. Our speaker has been Noam Chomsky, professor of linguistics and philosophy at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Among his many publications, he is author of Middle East Illusions, which includes his early work, Peace in the Middle East, Reflections on Justice and Nationhood, The Fateful Triangle, The United States, Israel, and the Palestinians, and 9-11, a collection of interviews published in the aftermath of the attacks on the World Trade Center and the Pentagon. The lecture was delivered on March 15, 1989, at the Union Theater of the University of Wisconsin campus in Madison, Wisconsin. Part two of this program will conclude the lecture and turn to questions from the audience. Part three, the final program, will conclude the question and answer segment and turn to commentary from members of the Palestinian and Jewish communities involved in the search for a lasting resolution to this decades-old conflict. And now, a preview from Part 2 of the United States, Israel, and the Palestinians. Now, why has the, U the last comment, why has the U.S. modified its position with regard to dealing with the Palestinians, even though the Palestinians haven't changed their position at all? Well, that's an interesting question, and we can get some insight into it by looking at earlier events. So let's go back to the relations with Sadat of Egypt. Uh, everyone who reads the American press or you know, journals or books and so on knows that, that Sadat is the one good Arab. All Arabs are bad, but Sadat is the one good one, which is why he was killed, because the Arabs always kill the good guy. Uh, now, why was Sadat the good Arab? Well, the official story is that... Uh, Although Sadat was originally a bad Arab, like all the rest, that is, all he wanted to do was kill Jews, and like all Arabs do. Uh, in uh, 1973, he tried, in the October War, he tried to kill all the Jews, and it didn't work. And then, after that, under the kindly tutelage of Henry Kissinger and Jimmy Carter, uh, he became a man of peace, uh, and he flew to Jerusalem in 1977, and he offered peace. Uh, and then, of course, in our magnanimity, we accepted peace. Uh, and then came the Camp David agreements, and Sadat was a man of peace. That's the official story. The actual truth is a little bit different. Uh, the actual truth is that Sadat made a peace offer in February 1971, which was more favorable to Israel than the one that he made in Jerusalem in 1977. For more information about this and other PDX Justice programs, please visit our website at www.pdxjustice.org. You'll find broadcast dates for this and other programs, and links to additional resources for learning more about the conflict in Israel-Palestine. This program has been produced by PDX Justice Media Productions. Thank you for tuning in, and thank you for supporting public access cable television.